Hi everyone! Welcome to this series of interviews done by Arkin Digital Health. I'm Nadav Shimoni. I'm leading digital health investments for Arkin. In this series of interviews, we're going to bring leaders and seasoned executives coming from different parts of the U.S. healthcare system, hopefully to allow you, entrepreneurs, investors, and anyone trying to tap into the U.S. healthcare system to gain some insights, some value, some understanding how to do that better. In this episode, we're going to have Dr. Denine Voida with us. Dr. Voida spent the last 16 years within United Healthcare, the largest pair in the U.S. industry. And United Today is much, much more than just a pair, covering lots of different areas. Dr. Voida started her career as a physician, then turned entrepreneur, selling her company to United. In this episode, we're going to cover with Denine the pair's anatomy, trying to better understand how to interact with this organization. Let's get started. Dr. Denine Voide, it is a pleasure having you with us. Nadav, great to see you. Maybe just to start, you have such a vast working experience and you spent just the last 15 years within the largest health plan commercial pair in the United States. Perhaps you can think about an occasion or two that really influenced you in a significant way. Well, if you don't mind, I thought I would just start by telling uh, your listeners a little bit about my history, because I think with that context, you'll understand sort of um, the connection to United Health Group. And, and let me even make one small clarification as it relates to my last uh, 16 years. And it is that United Health Group, um, while United Health Care is a part of United Health Group, that's in a, indeed is the largest insurer in the U.S. from Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial, in reality, the Optum side of the house, which is both care delivery, consulting service, technology, and of course the bank and, and PBM, is um, is 50% of the house. And so it's not really just a, quote, insurance company. It is a large health and well-being company. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the U.S. marketplace, that people are uh, getting into each other's business in a way that's really exciting so let me back up a little. So I trained, as you know, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in pediatrics in Hemonk. And um, at the time, the CHOP was getting a new CEO, and uh, he asked me to join his management team. And I had worked in his lab in, at Penn in college, so it was a really kind of an exciting opportunity for both of us. And that was the beginning, frankly, of my administrative career. And it was not by design, but it certainly worked out well. And because I was an administrative day job, the best place for me to do my clinical practice was in the emergency room because it offered a lot of flexibility, of course. Yeah. And so, and it was in the emergency room one night that I noticed that everybody in there, all these children were, had a lot of excess weight. And I, it was something that, so this was about 19, I guess the late 90s. And I'd never noticed all these overweight children. And in fact, all my years at CHOP, I never had anybody ever talk about excess weight in children. I knew everything about complex cardiac disease or cancer or type 1 diabetes, but excess weight just was never discussed. And so I started doing a little homework uh, on the internet, and I noticed that the public health community had been ringing the bell about the increasing weight problem in the U.S. for over a decade. But of course, nobody was listening. And so I did some research 
and looked and so and thought, well, if some parent did want help, where would I send them? Um, certainly not to chop at the time, right? You know, of course that has changed. And sure enough, there was a very strong evidence base, particularly for children under 12, that they do really well with weight loss. And we think of healthy eating and activity and really family-based, but there were really no services. So I decided that I would start a business in family weight management because it really is about the family. And so I tell you this story because when I think about your listeners, Nadav, I think, you know, the context of a really good startup is, first of all, is there a need? Is there a problem? And so in this case, obviously there was a health problem, but there was also, we did a lot of consumer research. And what was fascinating was that parents, particularly mothers, were very embarrassed about this. They knew the issue and really what they wanted. They wanted to make sure that, that kid went to the prom but they were embarrassed by it. So that was another learning about it. They didn't want to go into like the fat camp or to the fat doctor. So two was, there was a strong evidence base. The American Academy of Pediatrics had really good guidelines showing another researcher had proved that children who engage in um, healthy eating and activity actually can become normal weight in a couple of years. The key is before puberty, because as you know, through puberty, we all become relatively insulin resistant. And that's why adults struggle with weight loss. And so anyway, I ended up starting a, a business and again, learning from the sort of consumer insights that one, the mothers would pay for this. Two, we decided to create a technology platform so that it could be done confidentially, anonymously, both telephonically and internet-based, which in many ways, it was one of the first digital technology companies. And because of my academic roots, I was fixated on outcomes, you know, so we were going to stick to the evidence and we're going to drive to the outcomes. And it turns out that that was a great idea because at the time, United Health Group was getting into the wellness business and lo and behold, they needed a platform. Yep. So this is the third point for your listeners is one is while we all think about selling businesses, I ended up selling capability because it was, again, this was by now it's 2006 and the platform I had developed was based on Ruby on Rails, which was, as you know, state of the art and very flexible. And so I ended up selling uh, the business, but as an asset purchase agreement. But the, the cash was still green, as we say, you know. Yeah. So number one is, you know, understand what the problem is and will the market respond. Two is stick to the evidence. And lastly, is that in our world now, we call that a strategic. So I sold a capability to a strategic, which was great. This is tremendous because all of these three points are so relevant today. Yes. And I think so many companies can benefit from this mindset of, of crystallizing your problem, of yes. generating the evidence either on the cost side or the clinical side, but have a very robust evidence that you're doing something significant. And then the yes. question is, how is it significant or to whom? I mean, who yes. should you approach with it and, and, and so on? So this is, this is great. And, and yes. maybe, I mean, maybe it can serve us uh, as, a, you know, as a segue to speak about United a bit. Yes. And, and, and I guess on, on pairs in general. Yeah. Everyone tries to understand how pairs think. These are like magical organizations. Nobody can really understand before you have interacted with them. To your point, these are not just insure businesses. I think today, all of the large pairs are essentially much more than just insurance. They're, they're providing care. They're enabling care on so many different ways. So 
when a company is, is trying to interact, let's say, with the health plan side of the business, what considerations an entrepreneur should have in mind? You know, it's a great question, and there's a lot of complexity to the United States payer system. But the reality is, and one can get lost in that kind of minutia, but the reality is that health plans all over the world want to pay for what works. And I think that's really critical. So that's why they're very focused, as we talked about, on the evidence base. Um, unfortunately, around the world and here in the U.S., we see a lot of low-value healthcare, as it's called. And it is, you know, often well-published, showing that, you know, something doesn't work. For example, we know um, the, a lot of back surgeries are unnecessary. And in fact, you get much better outcomes from PT, yoga, et cetera. And yep. yet, you know, for a long time, the answer was to back surgery. And in fact, and you have to be careful there because it's about when we think about outcomes, you know, if you, you could have asked a surgeon, well, does that back surgery, was it a success? And if the fusion took, yes, it's a success, but my back still hurts as the patient, you know? So that's why I think that um, the payers are, are very focused appropriately so on low to eliminating low value care and getting into the hands of patients, high value care as much as possible. And often sometimes that high value care costs more. That's fine, but really it's about the evidence. So if you're going to go to a payer that you must actually have demonstrated outcomes in the published literature. So you can't just print a white paper and say, hey, look at, uh, trust me, look at this, because we all need to have external validation for this kind of work. It's not just a like nice to have, it's actually in the, the payer certificate of coverage, which is filed with every state, that experimental therapy is excluded. So they actually can't pay for it. And this isn't just the large commercial payers. This is also CMS because mm -hmm. again, as a clinical priority and a fiduciary priority, we want to pay for what works. So focus on that. Terrific. And, and for someone who spent so many years on kind of like the other side, you know, working within a plan, within a large insurer like United, are there any things that you were surprised to learn in, in your journey in United that you didn't thought about them before joining United? Actually, since I started the conversation about, you know, selling my company to United Health Group, that part of the deal was I had to stay three years. And I thought I would stay three years and two days and ended up staying, as we said, for about 16 years. And I will tell you, it is because of, I dare say, but the people, you know, and the people I had the privilege of working with and for were the best in the business. And the best means their commitment to the data, their commitment to really taking the vast amount of data that a group like United has and learning from that data. And I had the privilege of setting up a learning system through the research and development group to help the businesses run better. But when the businesses run better, that means we're delivering more, you know, the right care to the right people at the right time. And every year we're able to deliver on that promise more and more. And so I think people would be really surprised at how many talented people who are laser focused on, you know, the mission, helping people live healthier lives and not just figuring out how to send people to the best care out there, but actually figuring out what the best care possible is. And that's a completely different statement. 
And I think, at least on my end, it seems like United is taking that couple of steps forward, trying to provide that care sometimes and not just relying on, on, on other components and, and utilizing different components within United to deliver better care, um, better outcomes, essentially. Sounds like a tremendous experience to be part of, of such organization. Yeah, and what's really exciting, too, is I'd say the shift in the last couple years, I would say nationally there was a ton of emphasis on access and cost, of course. And now what you're seeing in the marketplace is it's all about outcomes and service. And so, you know, your listeners should really think about that because, um, that's where the world's going in all parts of our lives. And healthcare is, we're always a little bit late to the party, but yeah. we're at the party and we're going to have a good time. When healthcare arrives to the party, the party really increases, I guess. <laughs> it, you know, that's a very large start. industry. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. yes. Perhaps let's, let's spend some time on, on the Israeli perspective. I, I know you had uh, the opportunity to interact with a couple of Israeli companies. Right now, you've been starting to serve as an advisor, as a board member in a couple of companies. What are you seeing about Israeli companies? What excites you about uh, Israeli companies these days? Well, oh, so much. So let me start by saying I recently, not recently, but in the last couple of years, read the books, The Startup Nation, which I'm sure many of your listeners have read too. But I thought, first of all, it was well-written and a great articulation of both Israel itself and the Israeli people. You know, just truly impressive. So First of all, congratulations. And what I love about it is sort of their the Israeli startups embracing of next-gen technology. You know, so really thinking about the art of the possible, number one. Number two is I'm also impressed by, I dare say, but how much these startups are able to get done with more limited budgets than many organizations here in the U.S., I think that's really important, particularly in a startup community. And um, while it seemed less important for the last couple of years, I think the Israeli startups are in a good position because they've exercised that muscle yeah. of being prudent with their capital. And that is really going to be incredibly important in the next couple of years. So congratulations. Now, all that said, there's one small change I would recommend, and that is Sometimes it strikes me that the features are really the minimal viable product. And yet I feel like, and again, this is a number I'm just going to pull out. If they would spend 10% more, they could turn a minimal, minimal viable product into a minimal lovable product. And really, you know, a few delighter features that would really help as we think about from a service perspective or from the customer perspective. They obviously, um, your companies are doing well. Uh, they really, many of the folks are, you know, they have leading edge technology or leading edge clinical processes or, and now I think, you know, 10% more, you can uh, take over the service element as well. You know, first of all, I think you just coined a very important phrase of a minimal lovable product. I'm always struggling with the notion of MVP in healthcare. So maybe it should be MLP in, in healthcare. Yes. Because well, I have to give credit. To, credit was due. Um, the first time I heard that term was, as you know, Deborah Estrin from Cornell Tech. And that was, boy, um, she's always ahead of her time. But that must have been about 10 years ago. She's always ahead of the curve. And, and for sure, we yes, need to is. have, hopefully, <laughs> we will have Deborah with us in another episode. I will try to be a bit uh, Israeli 
and 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 push Please. you e- even further. I mean, for okay. sure there are there are other points that people can take into account and and be better. What else? I mean, okay, frugal with capital. I, I mean, that's an advantage yeah. and and sometimes disadvantage. What else? Yeah. I mean, you, you you talked about focusing a problem about yeah. providing outcomes. Perhaps other issues you are seeing with Israeli companies. And again, the point here is just to give value for our listeners. Yeah. So. It's clear to me Israelis have a good understanding of their strengths. Like they know, and it's interesting, people are very proud of telling about where they spent their time in the military, um, whether they were in intelligence or they were in software engineer, you know. And really, it strikes me that because of their skill sets, they ended up being slotted into those positions. That's great. Know your strengths. You know, the flip side of know your strengths is be really aware of your blind spots. And so sometimes when I listen to the Israeli startup community speaking to the U.S. customers, they're blind to how American, the American buyer thinks and just how the American buyer can receive information and what problems that buyer wants. Not what, you know, you may have a solution looking for a problem, but you'll be far more successful if you think about the problem and then develop the solution. Use that same skill set, but turn it around. And, and really, because that is a blind spot for many of your folks. Great point. Great point. And I, and I think we, we're just, again and again, we're coming to the notion of know exactly what problem are you trying to solve. Right. Who will pay for that, I guess, yep. uh, is, is the follow-up question. Yeah. And I even ask people, if this was your money, if you're trying to sell me an airplane, I don't need an airplane. I don't want an airplane. <laughs> so, so it might be a great airplane, but I don't want an airplane. You know, so I, I just want bicycles. I, want. I just want to get to the, <laughs> you know, to the other street. Right, right, right. You touch the market and what's going on out there. We hear a lot about providers struggling a bit, not recovering uh, at the pace, I guess, many people thought after COVID, not returning to the level of activity after, after you know, COVID hopefully, you know, fading out. But what about pairs? I mean, I think 2021 were very good years for pairs because of perhaps diminished level of care in some cases. I mean, lower payments as, as a byproduct, of course. H- how do you see pairs in this current environment bouncing back from COVID and so on? So I'm going to address sort of the payer-provider interface there. I'd say two big things jump out right away. One is, you know, we do have a problem around the world and particularly uh, here in the United States with provider burnout. And when you listen to providers, one thing that comes out is the administrative hassles. And so on a very positive note, you see the payers and frankly, the startup community beginning to focus. There was always some focus on, you know, the administrative uh, spend and part of healthcare administration. But now we're really seeing folks, again, being led by many of the payers to figure out how to reduce the administrative burden and just the frustration and the harassment, which it can feel like. I don't think it's intentional harassment, but it can feel that way when, say, something like, I dare say, but prior authorization. The goal is really to eliminate low-value care and quickly get high-value care into the hands of consumers. So there is uh, a real need for, I think, tech-enabled service there. So it's still, I mean, there still has to be an escalation pathway with human, 
but I think there's a tremendous opportunity to automate a lot more. Um, and you use your data, your data both about the procedure itself and also about the provider network and just make sure you're getting folks to the right care at the right place in the, at the right time. And again, to really remove that administrative um, speed bump. I'd say the second one is this whole notion of virtual care first. Wow. Almost overnight, a lot of visits went virtual. And to me, it's particularly exciting for when you can use the advances in telecommunications, i.e. FaceTime and the other sort of technologies that allow what we're even you and I are doing here to allow me to interact with my doctor. And I think early days of telehealth were about some potentially somebody you don't know and, you know, getting some urgent care or less urgent. And but what I think really exciting is also the quick adoption of telehealth by everyday physicians from primary to specialty and behavioral health, of course, and to make that care more accessible. And now, what again, I dare say, but particularly during the pandemic, the telehealth was used for access. And now there's a laser focus on ensuring the same outcomes. Maybe in some cases we'll see better outcomes, but we don't know unless we study it. Um, And of course, from a service perspective, it feels like a time to can be much more consumer friendly if, you know, again, if I don't need to come to Israel, although I'd love to be invited to, you know, to have this kind of conversation. Now we can do this at, at much, you know, lower cost, obviously. And so that's really, really, I think, just a sort of thrilling opportunity for all of us. And that's on the service side, but also you're seeing benefit designs. They're called virtual first benefit designs, and this is on the insurance side. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what it sounds like. In non-emergent, obviously, if it's emergent, you go to the ER, cases that you start with a virtual visit just so you make sure you're getting to the right doctor for the right problem, that you show up with the right labs, you know what I mean, to make those visits much more efficient. And frankly, it, it, it allows for an element of steerage. So if my child has an earache and I'm think I need to go see an ENT, I think for the first visit, your pediatrician will do a great job. And so that kind of steerage is both, you know, saves an unnecessary visit to a specialist. And we can also then help make sure that kid, that child can get seen in a timely way. I love it. The way you keep coming back to the, show me the evidence, show me the, show me the money, but show me the evidence. I mean, yeah. So important, so often being yeah. ignored, I guess. I, I can't think about an, another word. Um, yeah, and and, and, and I, please. I think payers get a bad rap here. Everyone may, wants to make it about the money, but the truth is it is about the evidence and yes. it's about the data. Here, here's how I say to people. Okay, so I always gave United Healthcare a ton of credit because they really took the quality data part first and then, of course, the cost. And let me walk you through an example an easy one, like an MRI, you know, and you, you definitely need the MRI. Everyone agrees that in the same community, it can be 500, 750, 2000 or 5,000. Yeah. So say it is your money, Nadav, your money. Now it's, and it's for your own. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to say, you know, what you would do for your wife or children, just for yourself. <laughs> which, which one would you pick? And I think, cause we did, we did study this and which one do you think people picked? So here are the options, 500, 750, 2,000 and 5,000. So the cheapest yeah. one, I guess. So now, see, you're a physician, so you're kind of biased, but most <laughs> people pick the second to the lowest one. They okay. feel like the 500 one is something's wrong with that, you know, so, and the 5,000 is ridiculous, right? You know, so they say, well, go with the 750 one. And that's the, the, also the importance, and we haven't talked much about this, of 
behavioral economics in this whole healthcare system and how people interact with each other from a behavioral yeah. perspective. Because as you know, it, it, it's everything. The marketers have figured this out in the non-healthcare way years ago. Um, but it's really exciting to see the work of uh, Kevin Volpe and David Ash and see how their published findings about these nudges, et cetera, can really meaningfully help us change the healthcare system. Then maybe uh, a last question, and in, in a way, touching back the, the pair's angle. We keep talking about the evidence, but... You know, the Israelis, for us, complaining is a national sport, but, you know, they will, they will say, essentially, that in order to provide, to produce this evidence, you need to work with someone. And pairs will want to see a very impressive level of evidence, something that is perhaps revolving working with a pair. So it seems like a chicken and egg problem to some extent. How, how can you overcome that? And it, perhaps you have any concrete examples or ideas how to, to overcome this problem. I would disagree with that in that I don't think, I mean, generally the payers to some degree get involved in research and development, of course. But the reality is historically the evidence has come from, you know, the academic community or the startup community themselves and partnering with content experts, subject matter experts, because again, neither the commercial payers nor CMS can even entertain paying for something unless it's in the yeah. published literature. And so, and it can't be the journal of my mother who <laughs> she, she takes all my submissions. No, it has to be a recognized <laughs> high, high-ish to high-end journal. And I always remind people of our Hippocratic oath, do no harm. Yeah. So we all, as physicians and researchers, should be remain curious, should make sure that the research study is designed to answer the question. And I'm going to argue that's not always a randomized controlled trial. You know, yeah. with a randomized controlled trial, they're, I always call it, like, they're very narrowly focused to answer a single endpoint. And I always call them, they're like the perfect people with all the exclusion criteria and inclusion criteria, et cetera. Yeah. And yet, in the wild people don't look like or behave that way. And so I think that there's an opportunity in some cases, sometimes it's required, like with drug development, randomized controlled trials, but in other cases, large-scale pragmatic trials where we have, first of all, a diverse set of people who participate in this research. And it, by definitions, like large-scale pragmatic real-world evidence trials take into the account that, you know, Offices are messy sometimes from a logistics perspective yeah. and people are messy sometimes from how we actually live our lives and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it also will help the with health equity issues in that we really need a diverse patient population to really understand what works, you know, what works and when does it work and for whom. And we know that, you know, men and women or children and adults, you know, metabolize things differently or use wearables differently, et cetera. So yeah. I'm a big proponent of pragmatic research. And I think it's exciting also to watch the payers begin to get more sophisticated on the different levels of evidence, um, not only required, but are really are important so that they make sure that they're able to pay for the right services for the right people at the right time. The four R's, right? The right person, right, right, the right place, right treatment, right time. Dr. Denine Voite, it's been terrific to have you with us. Focus on the yep. evidence and understand the problem you are solving. Outcomes so, and service. Outcome and service. And nothing can be just automated. Service is needed. And the question yeah. is how to provide efficiencies as you mature. 
Thank you so much. Be well. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some real value from it. And we would love to have your thoughts, feedback, and anything else. Links are available in the description. See you next time.